Welcome to the Great Awakening Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Dawes. In previous episodes, you may recall me talking about negative world. That's a concept that I got from a um, framework for understanding the cultural moment we're in called the Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. It was developed by someone named Aaron Wren, who is a um, writer and a consultant. He has uh, a newsletter called The Masculinist that is, um, has been running for a long time. It's really shaped my thinking in a lot of ways. Very, uh, very smart, intelligent guy that um, I'm excited that I had the opportunity to sit down with. So I can't wait to share that conversation with you as we talk about that model and how it can help us um, think through new ministry strategies as we head into a negative world. But before we get to that, I'd love to tell you about Gold River Trading Company. Gold River Trading Company is a tea company that uh, offers a, an assortment of fine teas that I've been enjoying um, myself the last few evenings as I'm recovering from a cold. And uh, it's just been a great way to end the day and soothe my throat and uh, enjoy a nice beverage. But the, the great thing about Gold River Trading Company is that they are a company that shares our values. There are so many companies out there that are supporting things that as Christians, we just cannot get behind and we can't feel good about our money uh, going to support things that we just find, um, you know, contrary to what scripture would teach. And we know that there's not a lot of options. And so I'm really grateful for companies like Gold River Trading Company that give us uh, other options uh, to spend our, you know, in this case, beverage money with companies that support our values and, and not companies that are actively advocating things that are against the things of God. So um, for our listeners, uh, they are offering 10% off your order. If you go to their website, goldriverco.com, it's goldriverco.com and use the uh, coupon code awakening. You can get 10% off of your order. So with that, let's jump right into my conversation with Aaron. Hey, Aaron, thanks for uh, joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So you have developed uh, a framework that has been really helpful in kind of understanding this, um, you know, the title of our podcast is The Great Awakening. You know, I, I think uh, there's a lot of people trying to understand the world that we're living in right now. And uh, you, you've come up with a framework that I think has been really helpful and sparked a lot of conversation. Can you tell us about your three worlds of evangelicalism uh, model? Yes, I typically don't focus a ton on the woke issue per se, but it's interesting that your podcast is called The Great Awakening because The Great Awakening has been dated to 2014 by Matthew Iglesias and other writers like him. And 2014 is one of the key transition dates that I lay out in my framework to help explain what has happened in the world. It's very clear that something major shifted in the culture sometime during Obama's second term. We all sense it. We all feel it. We might not be able to explain it, articulate it. But man, the world today is very different than the world was 15 years ago something changed fundamentally. In my three worlds model, 
is designed as a tool to help people make sense of the world in which we live. And what it does is it traces the decline of Christianity in terms of attendance and influence and status in society since about 1960. Because in the 1950s, America was essentially at its high watermark of all time in church attendance. We still had a Protestant establishment uh, in the country. It was still a you know, Christian normative country in a lot of ways. You know, again, starting around 1960, certainly into the 60s, uh, things started going downhill for Christianity in terms of attendance, in terms of status. We had major upheavals like you know, the counterculture of the 60s, the sexual revolution of the 70s. We saw the end of the Cold War in the 80s. And all through this, there's sort of been a steady sort of downtrend in Christianity. And so I divide this period between, say, 1960-65 to the present into three distinct phases, eras, worlds, whatever you want to call them. And I call these the positive, the neutral, and the negative world. And these names refer to the way society, especially elite society, consensus elite society, views Christianity. In the positive world, Christianity is still basically viewed as a positive, even if it's in decline. Being known as a good church-going man uh, helps you seem like a better employee, more credible person. Christian moral norms are still basically normative in society uh, as well. I date that to essentially prior to 1994. Around 1994, we hit a tipping point and we enter into what I call the neutral world, which lasts from 94 to 2014. And in the neutral world, Christianity is no longer seen as a positive, but it's not really seen as a negative either. It's sort of viewed again neutrally. It's essentially one of many options in a pluralistic public square. So we might meet and I'd say, you know, I'm a Christian. You'd say, great, I'm a vegan. Let's talk. We'd have a conversation here in this pluralistic public square. And in this era, Christian morals still had a basically residually normative framework in society. Even if that was decaying, it was still influential. After 2014, we entered into what I call the negative world, in which society, particularly at its elite levels, is now basically hostile to Christianity. Being known as a church-going Christian, especially of a conservative variety, um, will hurt you, especially in the elite precincts uh, of society. In kind of Christian morality, uh, especially around sexual matters, is expressly repudiated. And in fact, Christianity is now seen as the leading threat to the new public moral order. And so that helps explain basically what we are sensing in this post-2014 era. We've entered into what I've called the negative world, and it is really unprecedented. In the first time in the 400 years history of the United States, uh, Christianity is essentially now held in disrepute. And that's a very unfamiliar situation. And it's causing many, many transitions in our society. Yeah. And I think we're, we're feeling that whether, you know, we can express it or not. I think within the kind of evangelical world, a lot of the, the divisions and kind of fracturing we're seeing is the result of some of those um, you talk about in your first things piece, you know, new cultural pressures that we're experiencing under the negative world. Can you kind of walk us through what some of those are, what, what, what we're experiencing? Well, essentially today we have a new public morality that 
I wouldn't even call it morality. It's really ideology. And this, again, is not an entirely new thing. It's something that has been developing over the course of that period of time since the 1960s. I've been very influenced by a sociologist who goes by the name E. Digby Baltzell. He coined essentially the phrase uh, WASP for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, the upper class. He would say he didn't coin it, but he's the reason we all know it. And he observed that as this old upper class establishment went away, there was essentially a decline of, going to call it standards of personal gentlemanly behavior. He talked about the gentleman's code versus statements of ideology. And his line, and I'm sure I'm going to botch the quote, is today it is far more damaging to you to be known as an anti-Semite uh, or a racist than it is to be known as a consummate liar or an adulterer. And this was probably written in the 70s or the 80s, you know, when he was he was saying this and he was seeing these changes ongoing. And so there's this whole complex of issues ranging from race to uh, sexuality, to climate change, that essentially represent a package of ideological commitments that anyone in upper middle class society needs to affirm in order to more or less be viewed as a member of that community in good standing. In the corporate world, this goes under the moniker of ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Goals. This is essentially an ideology, uh, not a moral system in the sense that, you know, morals are you know tended, even if there's variation in their application or tended to be kind of timeless, if you will, uh, these ideologies change all the time. And so you have to constantly keep abreast of the new lingo, the new fad. They're sort of like skirt links in that regard, only, you know, they're, they're not really op oscillating in a pendulum, I guess, like skirt links, but they're... um. There are things that change a lot, and you have to be very attuned to what the new thing of the day is. But fundamentally, if you want to, um, you know, if you want to be a member in good standing in society, you basically have to go along with these. And so that that is basically it. Again, not all of these are necessarily uh, evil. I would say. You know, some people are very into climate change. You know, I don't take a, necessarily a position on what we should do about that. Uh, but some of them around, say, sexuality are in conflict with traditional Christian views. And therefore, that can produce pressures on people, particularly in these more elite domains of society, and particularly for people who are located in uh, geographies where that sort of social milieu is prevalent which could be, you know, coastal elite cities like, say, New York, San Francisco, D.C. Could also mean the, you know, the urban centers of a place like a Nashville or an Austin. Could mean college towns. Could also mean sort of upscale corporate suburbs. Less the case in sort of a blue-collar uh, rural environment. Uh, but these sorts of ideological pressures, uh, you know, sort of are coming to bear uh, on the church. Yeah, this... Uh, it We've been talking, um, the last episode we had James Wood on, and um, I was talking to him about this whole winsomeness debate that he kind of waded into with his uh, his piece about how he evolved on Tim Keller. And I think uh, your framework and th this kind of idea of negative world has been uh, really yeah, kind of underlying that that whole conversation that's been happening on Twitter as 
we really try to figure out um, how to do ministry in negative world. Have you been following that that you know discussion at all? Uh, I have. It's interesting. Winsomeness has really not been a category uh, that I've dealt with much at all. Uh, I thought about my first things piece where I do call Tim Keller winsome, but that's a case where I uh, just took a term and I knew that everyone was out there that everyone that everyone would relate to and just applied it uh, to him. Uh, but winsomeness to me doesn't really follow fall into my framework or to the way that I say Christians have adapted to it. Uh, I, I think people tend to use a little bit the term winsome to refer to the cultural engagement strategy, you know, that I mentioned. I prefer to think of it in in that terms, um, you know, but winsomeness per se, I, I don't really have a lot to to say about that. I think a lot of, you know, quote unquote, winsomeness comes down to basically a personality. We are all have personalities. Some people have like low agreeableness. Other people have high agreeableness. Um, you know, I am the way I am. In part, there is strategic thought behind it. I'm not going to say that there's no strategic thought, but I'd like to think that I'm also authentic, uh, you know, kind of being authentically who I am. Uh, it would be very hard, uh, you know, for me to adopt sort of styles uh, that aren't me, even if, um, you know, I thought they would be super effective mm -hmm. uh, in the marketplace. And that's where when I, when I honestly, when I look at a guy like Keller, I don't see here's a guy who's decided to be winsome as a strategy. To me, he just looks very authentically himself. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I see him as sort of being, you know, the right man at the right place at the right time. Uh, and so he caught, he caught lightning in a bottle, uh, in New York, um, for a variety of factors, but I don't, I, it, that's interesting. I never would have actually used the term winsome, uh, to describe him. Uh, I, I think of him very differently than that. And I think he's just being like who he genuinely is. Although obviously, you know, he himself has talked specifically about some of his linguistic strategies. Clearly they're very conscious of how they use language, very deliberate and intentional about how they use language. Uh, I just don't think, you know, winsome, this is just not a category that I've really, this person's winsome, this person's not winsome. It's usually like not the way that I evaluate people. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I have been following this, it's been a great debate. Uh, and I, you know, I thought, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, indebted to, to uh, James Wood for writing that piece because it really helped get this framework more out into, into the discussion, which is, Excellent. Um, I think this framework really is resonating with people. Um, again, it's sort of uh, a sort of a, the, the right time, maybe the right framework at the right time. I originally published this, a version of this in 2017, and I actually originally came up with the first version of it in 2014. Uh, and it did get when I first wrote it up in 2017, it was really popular then. But I think the world wasn't quite ready for it, just as they weren't quite ready for uh, Rodrier's Benedict option. I think maybe he was a little early to market mm -hmm. with that book. It's always a challenge when you're sort of on the leading edge that if you're too soon, it doesn't resonate with people. Just like uh, Friendster or MySpace didn't win the, the social networking wars. It was Facebook. Sometimes you got to be the right, not just the right message, but also at the right time. And I think with the uh, first things republishing it earlier this year, 
now's been a really good time for that. Uh, I think people are ready to to think about this more. And people get it that the world changed in Obama's second term. So it's putting a framework to help understand something that people really do sense at some level. And, you know, I'm very gratified uh, to see people really engaging with it. Even the people that critique it, I'm glad that they are engaging with it because it shows that it's really starting to drive the discussion uh, out there, which, um, you know, I, I hope they continue. And, and the critics uh, have actually been helpful to me uh, in a number of ways. Uh, you know, some of the things that they've said, maybe I don't agree with them all, but like, oh, I need to look at this dimension of it. I need to cover off more on this. It can help me refine it, refine the way I talk about it, refine the way I position it, refine the presentation of it. So uh, your critics actually can help make you better too. Yeah. So let's talk about the critics for a second. What, um, what, which criticisms have you found like legitimate? I, I think I saw mm. this week, someone was talking that this is actually, you know, you're talking about a, um, you know, kind of a Christian nationalist version of Christianity that it's good that, you know, the world has turned sour on that. Is that, do you think there's any merit to to that argument? Well, I mean, that, that's sort of a rejection of Christendom, uh, basically, in general. Um, I, I think there's been a few there's been a few different approaches. One has been essentially claiming that there's nothing new about the negative world. It's the same old negative world it's always been. Uh, that's sort of been like the David French critique. Again, I don't think that resonates with people because the world has changed and you don't provide an alternative that accounts for how the world changed. Um, then it's you know, it's not going to really resonate with people. I think you, if you're going to critique it in that regard, you have to offer an alternative. I think another brand of critique is to essentially pan back the lens a little bit and say, look, just like I did with Baltzell, look, some of this stuff was here in the 70s. This is not new. We've been, and, and there's some of this is true. This is, this period from say 60 to today, it really is essentially a, a dynamic. There has been some constant dynamics, and what we're seeing today is, in effect, an outworking of some of the earlier things that were there. Um, so I would, I, I wouldn't reject that, but I would just point out: look, I'm not trying to talk about Charles Taylor's 500-year history of secularization, or you know, the Enlightenment, what the Enlightenment did. You know, there's ways to pan back the lens uh, and take different, shorter, or narrower views. I'm trying to explain, you know, within a particular era in America, uh, what was going on there. But I think it's worth uh, thinking about the, the presentation uh, on that. You know, and I think, you know, another kind of uh, popular one that seems to be out there, uh, you know, is, is really to try to, um, you know, bring up race and say, look, you know, America was, you know, racist, segregationist back in this era, wasn't Christian. That's sort of the Christian nationalist approach. But again, I think that, re that rejects all of Christendom mm -hmm. in the sense that there's been, you know, evils throughout Christendom era. Uh, I, I would say within that and within what I labeled the positive world, such as the civil rights movement, virtually all of the reform argumentation mm -hmm. came out of a sort of a Christian, uh, kind of a Christian framework, mm -hmm. uh, if you will, in talking about those, those injustices. Now, is that entirely true? Marxism uh, really was not you know, um, Christian per se, although, you know, because it's Hegelian, it has a sort of eschatology to it. And there's, there's some things that, um, 
a lot of the, a lot you know Marxism does draw, I guess, on some Christian tropes, uh, if you will. So I'm not saying everything, uh, every reform movement was uh, necessarily Christian, but you know, throughout, there's been these reform movements constantly throughout Western history. I believe it's been argued that the idea of reform is one of the key attributes of Western culture. This has just been something there. And to say that because of all the evils that occurred in Christendom means it couldn't really be Christian, ergo there's no difference between Christendom and pagan classical civilizations, I think kind of obscures more than it, than it illustrates. Mm. Of course, there's always been, um, you know, um, you know, injustices in the past and, and things of that nature. But again, it doesn't necessarily give an account. Uh, it doesn't necessarily give an account of, um, you know, the present day and this, this transition that occurred around, um, around 2014. So I, there, there's, um, you know, so I think there's a lot, uh, I think there's a lot there. I don't ever hold up this framework as being a, an objective portrayal of some ontological truth. And I think that's really what distinguishes my framework from theological claims and debates or sort of philosophical claims and debates. It's essentially a heuristic. I, you know, I come from a consulting background and when consultants make frameworks, they, the goal of the framework is to help the business executives make decisions and to understand the world that they're in. It's not to, you know, say this is what is some objective underlying scientific reality. Of course, we believe that it's rooted in the truth and it's based on data and it's based on rigorous analysis. Uh, but it's not, again, it's not like a debate over the nature of the Trinity uh, or something like that. Sure. And again, we see that these sorts of things are quite useful in, in many ways. That Typically, we divide history into what three phases sort of Antiquity, uh, the Middle Ages, and modernity. That obscures a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot that that does not capture. But there's something about that framework that people find very useful. There's a reason we come back to it, because it really does illustrate something about the world. And so I would view my framework as similar to that. It's, it's a way to look at history and divide it up and say, are there themes that can make, can make sense out of this? I would certainly think there are probably many ways we could examine this and uh, maybe put a different lens on it. I would like to see more lenses on the problem because a lot of times it gives you a, a tool set that you didn't have before. That's one of the reasons that I was really uh, uh, impressed and influenced by Digby Baltzell because he wrote about the upper class in America in a social class. Social class is something we don't even think about in America. And that sort of social class angle uh, really oh, it was like turned on a light bulb and let me understand things that I never understood before. So just as an example, there's a famous story from the history. It's one of these heroic stories from the history of political conservatism. It's when William F. Buckley wrote his book, God and Man at Yale. And it was this massive controversial book, bestseller. And it had never occurred to me that, you know, the reason that they didn't like God and man at Yale isn't because of his arguments about faith per se, or the contents of it per se. They didn't like that this Irish Catholic upstart that they had invited into Yale, the Wasp Citadel that they had invited into Skull and Bones, left and then took a big dump on him. Like, what an ingrate. 
And until you understand the social class and the fact that there was still a Protestant establishment and that the Catholics were still a little bit on the outs, you can't really understand what's happening. And that's, that's, a, that's a light bulb. And so what are other light bulbs that we need to turn on that help us understand aspects of the world? I would hope that there are going to be more maps, more lenses than just the one uh, that uh, I have. And so uh, I think there'll be much more engagement with this, um, you know, in in the coming uh, the coming years. You didn't really ask about it. Um, but the, the, the other half of my article uh, was an analysis of what happened to various sorts of um, maybe tribes is the wrong word. But I, I also said, look, there's these eras and then there's these characteristic ministry strategies of the era. Yeah, which I, was I said was the, next. The, the culture war, mm-hmm. uh, the seeker sensitives and the cultural engagers. And I do an analysis of them. And, you know, Trevin, one of the groups that Trevin Wax um, mentioned that I don't talk about hardly at all is the emerging church. Now, for a lot of people, the emerging church era was a seminal moment and a really important, pivotal moment in the history of modern evangelicalism. And I was never influenced at all by the emerging church, and I think the emerging church is kind of over. But I think that's one of the things that if you were going to critique or provide an alternate view, you might look at it through the lens of emerging church and new Calvinism and neo-Anabaptist and divide things up a little bit differently, uh, you, you know, than, than I did. I think you could, you could tell a story in which groups like the emerging church played a much bigger role in the story uh, than I put, put, put them in. Not to say that I think I'm wrong or that I'm unfair, but again, I'm telling a particular story focusing on different, you know, this emphasis, that emphasis, there are certainly other ways to make emphases, you know, and, and if, so if I were going to, um, if I were going to tell, ask somebody to think about a way to look at this, I would take, um, I would take a lens that somehow told the story, interact with the cultural changes through the lens of maybe it's the tribes that Brad Vermerlin, um, identified in his book, Reformed Resurgence. He did his dissertation on New Calvinism uh, and his expanded version of his dissertation was published as Reformed Resurgence on Oxford University Press. It's really good. And, you know, he talks about he talks about the world through the lens of a like a playing field. He uses this uh, field theory uh, to analyze evangelicalism. It's like evangelicalism is like a playing field and there are different teams on the field and they're jockeying for position strategic position within the evangelical field. And he talked about New Calvinism was one of them. The emerging church, I think, was another. Maybe the neo-anabaptist. Then there were sort of the mainstream evangelicals. So that's sort of uh, almost football field analogy. It's another way to look at it. And so I I think the Vermerlin lens was very interesting precisely because he gave an interesting way to break, decompose it. And and that's so I think there's a lot of opportunities to add value um, and w- by putting new ways of looking at the problem. Uh, so I, I feel very good uh, about mine so far. In fact, the, the criticisms that I've gotten um, have sort of made me feel like I'm on the right track, <laughs> basically, in terms of, yeah. uh, of what they are. Uh, but I think there's, there's much more to be said on this topic. Yeah, I, I, I wonder, I, it's interesting you, you talk about it as, as a lens um, through which to look at, at the kind of cultural moment we're in um 
because I was listening to something um, by Oren McIntyre this morning where he's talking about how uh, our different ideological lenses are useful in so far as they were um, they're applied to what they're intended to um, examine. So like, you know, science is helpful when examining the natural world, but when we try to apply it to, you know, morals or, you know, how we should live our lives, you know, it's not a good lens for that purpose, but we, we become so married to the lens that we're using that we, you know, try and force everything through that lens. And I, I right. wonder if the cultural engagement uh, ministry model is operating in that fact and that that's fueling a lot of the criticism and the negative reaction to the 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 framework you've put forward because it for so long it it was explaining how the the culture worked and it it worked to to some degree to get you know people into the church to open you know have those conversations and you know, you, you see the fruit in, in the ministries of Tim Keller and, and other, you know, uh, cultural, you know, uh, ministries that are targeting cultural elites. Yeah. What's the old saying? You know, when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. There is a sense in which we conceive of the world through the tool sets that we have. And I want to just make a brief diversion because I think that's very important. When we analyze the world and we analyze the future, we tend to look at what's in front of us, what we see, the tools we have, the facts we know. But the truth is, there's so much that we don't know. And occasionally, this happened to me, uh, for example, multiple times in my life. But I feel like there are times when it's almost, uh, you know, as if God figuratively, not literally, I'm not saying it's literally, but like figuratively said, Aaron, let me show you the answers to questions you didn't even know you were supposed to be asking. It's the Donald Rumsfeld's famous unknown unknowns. Mm. Uh, my friend Dwight Gibson uh, has been pushing for years this idea of rediscovering the methods of exploration. And he's basically like, look, what the sort of once we explored the whole world, we essentially transitioned away from exploration from like the Lewis and Clark expedition crossing this unknown territory and became very management focused where we're kind of in a more controlled domain or we're making adjacent expansions into areas that we think we understand or the domain of the unknown is pretty small. But that's sort of an illusion. The reality is there is a territory, an unknown territory, unknown facts. Uh, and I think that sometimes we've we've uh, reduced our sphere of vision so much that there we don't take of account one that there's things going on in this world that we have no clues going on. Secondly, that God can do things. He acts when we have no clue what He's going to act, what He's going to do, or what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, I think it's very easy to say, well, we see these trends, we see these factors, we see these forces, we see these teams on the field, we see the negative world, ergo, we'll sort of predict the future, and we'll come up with this master strategy. Uh, but is it, it's like Mike Tyson, everybody's got, a, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and there's some other thing, the world's going to change in ways we can't even think about predicting. Who is going to predict at January 1st, 2015? Donald Trump was going to be the next president. Nobody, not even Donald Trump. Who predicted 
the COVID thing. You know, stuff happens. Who predicted the Ukraine war? The stuff just happens. And, you know, the, we don't have an inevitable future. So I do think there's an element of we need to have an exploration mindset. We need to have this mindset of sort of trusting God as we go into unknown territories. There's a sort of a line, uh, you know, after 40 years in the desert, everybody's, you know, the, the, you know, the Hebrews were in the desert. Everybody who was in Egypt died. The only thing that those people knew was the desert. And now they're going into the promised land. And there's this line as they're, they're crossing the Jordan River as the ark goes ahead of them to stay back from the ark and but follow the ark because we've not been this way before. That's one of the things that now you're about to enter a place you've never been before. And that's sort of where we are in a little bit. We're entering a place that's uncomfortable, that's unknown. And that's not a place, especially, um, you know, for people who are baby boomers or even Gen X used to world. You think the world works a certain way. Well, now we're learning the world doesn't work that way anymore. And so, um, there's a lot of so I think that's very important. I may have gone far afield from your your uh, your question, but we can't we can't just be overly think we all got figured out. And I have a tendency to try to write, write very neat models, but I don't have everything figured out. Uh, stuff's going to happen, but I do think that there's the, these models. And I understand going back to your original question about the culture engagement people who don't like my model. I, I've gotten the most cr criticism from them of the of the three groups uh, that I mentioned in my model. The culture war people, the uh, seeker sensitive people, which I, you know, you could think of as the kind of non-denominational suburban megachurch crowd mm -hmm. and cultural engagers. Uh, the seeker sensitive suburban megachurch people have reacted the best. I've gotten the most like, wow, this is like mind blowing from them. The uh, cultural, uh, the cultural engagers, um, uh, you know, have kind of reacted the worst. Uh, and I haven't gotten much from the culture war people. And as I said, the culture war people don't read first things. They don't, they don't, you know, they're, you know, they're listening to talk radio or they're following, you know, some influencer on Twitter. I, I don't think they would necessarily like what I have to say. Um, because I, I view the culture war model as commonly understood as obsolete, um, in a lot of ways. Not that I, not that I advocate a withdrawal from political engagement, but it needs to be conceived of in very different ways. The cultural engagers do read publications like First Thing, so they have the most contact with it. And yes, clearly, you know, my framework, you know, if my framework is basically right about what's going on in America, you know, it is an existential threat to their model. It basically says this model is obsolete. And I don't believe it's fully obsolete in the sense that um, there, there are probably elements of it that are going to continue to to function. Um, there are probably people who are going to operate successfully in that mode for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I said the culture war strategy was a product of the positive world. You know, the old moral majority era, Pat Robertson. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's still a lot of people doing that today. So they're still going on and it works. And, you know, for in a sense, for a certain group of people in certain situations, I think that's going to continue to be true of um, cultural engagement. I think there's uh, a lot that came out of cultural engagement that I um, I think is positive and should be carried forward. Uh, it's more respectful of intellectualism. It isn't characterized by the sort of the anti-elitist populism 
um, you know, of the of the culture war. I'm definitely not a populist. I I care about the people. Uh, and, you know, I'm not totally averse to appealing to the people. You know, FDR was, you know, a populist in that sense, um, you know, even if very different from the populist in the William Jennings Bryan sense. Uh, so like an FDR style populism, I, I could probably get behind, but it has to be rooted in a competent governing elite. Um, so I think that, you know, the kind of anti-elitism, anti-intellectualism, they characterized a lot of, um, you know, evangelicalism. I think the the culture war people, um, you know, have kind of come come away from that. I think that they're legit. They're legitimately more positive uh, on uh, you know aspects of the culture. They're not just like you know, the, the, you know, the cultures. You know, everything about America or whatever is just kind of irredeemably shot. Uh, you know, there are actually good things going on going on in the world. It's popular now. Now this is not going to get this is going to get me in trouble with the Southern Baptists here. Uh, but like, you know, it's popular out there to, uh, you know, attack IPAs and craft beers and like artisanal cheeses and pickles and all the stuff they do in, in Brooklyn. So that stuff's pretty good. <laughs> you know, the, I'm glad that we get better bread today, but of this and that. So I think there are, you know, uh, you know, I, I like cities. I'm a city guy. I'm from a rural area. I have nothing against rural areas. I grew up in a town that now has 71 people in it, uh, according to the latest census estimates. Um, uh, but, but I love cities and we, we just can't have this sort of anti-urban attitude, sure, uh, particularly yeah. as the world's going urban. So I think there's a lot that came out of the cultural engagement movement that's actually quite positive and it certainly can be retained over time. Um, but, you know, kind of the model, kind of the model of, um, you know, what I call it, I call it conflict minimization. We're going to stress the areas where we're in agreement with the culture we're going to downplay the areas where we're out of sync with the culture. We're going to essentially culturally affirm the milieu where we are. Um, I don't think that works. And candidly, some of it was just like what the religious right. Some of it was a little off. Mm. You know, I lived in urban areas. I lived in central Chicago, central New York for a long time. And there are elements of the, uh, you know, the cultural engagement thing that, you, that I think were just wrong. In the way that they approach it, I, I certainly, um, you, you know, for example, they're, they, they all critique Christian nationalism, but they all seem to love their city so much. We're in the mm -hmm. city for yeah. it. Call it, dare I say, idolatrous identification with the city where they live. And it's sort of urban triumphalism. And there's elements of that that are, um, you know, not good, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, any more than the anti-urban is. Um, I'm like, wow, why are they claiming we shouldn't identify with our country, but we should identify with our city. Uh, uh, never explained. So yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not, I think there are actually some critiques of the model. So, but I said, there are things that are good out of it, but I do understand that, you know, what I am saying is a threat to their way of doing business. And that's not comfortable for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah I was talking with a, a mega church pastor yesterday um, who came, I don't know if he was informed by your model, but he, he had a thread, um, is Josh Howard. And, um, I saw that thread. Yeah, it was back in, um, February. So about the same time your first things piece came out, uh, just talking about how, um, in this new world that we're in that, um, you know, previously in the old cultural engagement model, people were kind of coming to the church to, you know, um, to these new churches, um, 
kind of uh, as a refuge from the old, you know, fundamentalist, you know, where Christianity was this rigid uh, thing. And so the, the churches were a, a space where you could really emphasize grace and, um, and um, you know, um, a lot of our, uh, that aspect that had been kind of neglected by, uh, you know, society and the more fundamentalist branches. Um, but in this new world, it's not Christianity that is the, the Puritans that are, that are enforcing a, you know, a rigid morality. It's the secular progressives. And so the church in that, you know, context has to become something completely different. And, and it's, it's a place where people are looking to escape, you know, a secular morality that's being imposed on, to, on them. And they need some, you know, people want some clarity around that, that kind of stuff. I thought it was a really, uh, it was encouraging that, that, that there are people in these spaces rethinking the ministry model. And I think that's what you're your framework is so, um, so good. And I think that's the best thing that's come out of this is just re really thinking about how do we do ministry in a world that has changed so drastically? Yes. I don't have all the answers on that. I, I have been thinking about what do we live? What do we do in the negative world? It's very easy to say, okay, Aaron, you've said we're in this negative world. Nothing else works. Well, what does work? What should we do? And, um, you know, I, I have some thoughts on various aspects of that. But one of them is related to this idea of being a source of truth. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that I think characterizes cultural engagement style is, you know, triangulation. You know, this was uh, a word that was used to describe the politics of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. It was a sort of third way politics uh, that those guys mastered. And I don't think it's any accident that triangulation and third way politics took place primarily in the neutral world, that that was a characteristic political strategy of uh, the neutral world. And we see now that, you know, third way politics, I mean, Tony Blair is like discredited in, in England. You know, people are not pining away for the politics of Bill Clinton. Um, and so there is, there is a sense in which this, this kind of, uh, you know, I don't like to overly criticize the third way because I think there's a lot of ways to talk about third way, but there was this sense in which the kind of the cultural engagement people were trying to triangulate, um, a little bit, but maybe a better example of triangulation just to, to abstract it from the tribes is the theology of complementarianism. To me, complementarianism is a theology of triangulation. And even if you go back to maybe one of the most conservative uh, uh, people, uh, John Piper, who started that, he sort of distinguished complementarianism from traditionalism. No, we're not just defending traditionalism. We're going to respond to the feminist critiques around abuse. We're going to respond to the feminist critiques around this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but no, we're not going to abandon what the Bible says about male-only eldership or things like that. So it was, in essence, a third way. And although there's different brands of complementarianism uh, out there, uh, you know, there's sort of, you know, what's been now called thick and thin complementarianism. It's tended to be pretty thin, you know, even in the thicker, even in the kind of the thicker varieties, there's been less developed substantive complementarity of the genders. And so you end up with formulations like a woman can do anything an unordained man can do. 
And it's sort of like we're trying to we're trying to scalp. We want to affirm the Bible, but we're going to take a very minimalist hermeneutic on it. And we're only going to stand on the things where we have like, you know, proof text. We have proof text it really well. And to me, it's, it's just a it's just a, what I call a theology of triangulation. Rather than taking a step back and saying, OK, how, how do we actually what's the reality of gender? What's the reality of the created order? You know, how, how again do we look at scripture and at historic church teachings? And how do we look at what has happened to the household and family and industrial society and come up with a, you know, an approach that's, I think, more robust? Mm-hmm. Um, it might still be, in a sense, complementarian, uh, you know, in a sense. Uh, it might even be fit well within the Danvers statement. Um, you know, if you view that as sort of a minimal complementarian definition, but it's just not based on a, it's not just based on a triangulating approach between yeah. say feminism on the one hand and 1950s uh, on the other hand kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I think if I, one of my things is we have to get out of the triangulation business and start getting into the truth business. And again, how we state that, um, you know, is a, is a consideration of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, you know, um, I don't think rhetorical kind of bomb throwing at society is a very productive way to engage Sure. Uh, in a lot of ways. So how do you, how do you communicate the truth is certainly uh, an important part of it. My, my old, uh, one of my old mentors in the consulting world said every strategy project has three parts, a third, a third, a third. The first third is figuring out what the problem is. The second third is figuring out what the solution is. And the last third is figuring out how to communicate the problem and the solution. So coming up with the truth is only one aspect. And those are kind of the three things you have to do. What's the, what's the problem? What's the solution? What's the truth? And then how do you communicate it? So I think we, we definitely need to give thought to that. But we, you know, this, this idea that we think we can triangulate our way out of this place. I just don't think that approach um, is, is really viable. Yeah, and I don't think it it really appeals to what people are feeling right now. Just with so much, you know, moral insanity. I think if we lean hard into the truth in a winsome manner, in a a, a loving uh, communication of that, but not shying away from it, not trying to make it, you know, uh, mesh easily with the culture around us. Um, I think that's gonna produce fruit because I think people are hungry for that right now. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's, um, there's something to that, you know, we'll see. Um, yeah, you, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you know, the, the fruit comes from the power of right. That the Holy spirit doesn't come from our efforts in a sense. So I can have all the best plans, uh, in the world. Uh, but, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I do think, I do think this idea of being uh, a source of truth, being a lighthouse guiding people into the harbor, the safe harbor in a world where so many people are so hurting, they're so lonely, they're experiencing the consequences of living the lies that they've been told by society. And maybe there's no easy way out, you know, of the consequences of the ways that they live their lives and the decisions that they made. That's certainly true for me. I, you know, I had my son when I was 47 years old. I'd never recommend anybody become a dad at 47 if you can avoid it. But, you know, the reason that, you know, my, I had a, a child late in life 
it's because the way I lived my life when I was younger, you know, it's just that simple. And there's no going back and having kids at age 26 and, you know, all that stuff. So there is that, but like being, you know, being the, the harbor, helping people flourish uh, in a world where all of the messages of society are designed to devour you in some ways uh, is important. And so being a source of truth is part of that. And we can't ever, I do believe, um, as you, as we become a moral minority, uh, we need to be much more concerned with the internal health of our community uh, than we presently have been, but we can't turn aside from, you know, at the great commission and external facing mission. I do believe this accounts for a big part of the problem that Rod Trier ran into with his uh, Benedict option. The name Benedict option was, was a brilliant in a lot of ways because everybody knows it. Everybody says it. Uh, but, you know, in the evangelical world, the monastic, monastic imagery doesn't play. And then the idea is we're going to go into a monastery and withdraw. I think it that's not what he was going for with that. He was talking right. about more the community that they have together, the sense of stability. But I think this, when, when so many people uh, misinterpret you in the same way as talking about sort of abandoning kind of engagement and turning inward, then there's probably a communications in there, you know, error in there some way, somewhere. Uh, so I think it just probably comes from the fact that he he didn't really have an evangelical background and therefore he wasn't quite really equipped to communicate in, in, in their style. So I think that's one of the things that I take away from the reception of the Benedict option is any strategy that, you know, I articulate for the negative world has to make sure that, you know, the Great Commission is in there because if you don't have the Great Commission, then evangelicals are just gonna, not going to accept it. Right. You know, and, you know, it's probably also not correct. <laughs> so just just to be clear, too. So that's, you know, one thing is there. So we, have to, we do have to think about how to do how to do ministry and mission in this world. And being the source of truth is important. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's one thing I, I keep coming back to is just it could be so easy to get discouraged in negative world, to see the, the change in culture and to think about it in terms of what we've lost. But I think to, to get, you know, have those blinders on, we're going to miss the opportunities that are here that, that negative world is presenting to us. And I, I want the church to be right there and ready to, to kind of capitalize on that and, and, right. you know, be there for, uh, for people that are, they're seeking truth in a world that's uh, gone mad. Right. And, you know, I think it's very important to, to, to be a source of truth. And, you know, a lot of things that I see out there, especially in the more conservative precincts, um, it, I, I like to, cr I criticize conservatives a lot. Now, this is interesting. I get, I get the most blowback maybe from these kind of uh, called they're conservative in a sense, but these neutral world people, you're more, more about it. The, the more like hardcore kind of more political conservative, social conservative types. I, I you know, I've had a lot of criticisms, um, uh, you, you know, of that group uh, over the time. And uh, so never let it be said that I don't punch right, <laughs> I guess, because I, I most assuredly do all the time. Uh, but I think one of the challenges that, um, that has been the case with that group has been very reactive. Um, you know, somebody else says or does something. Mm. Yeah. Somebody puts out this book 
Somebody puts out this, and so we we you know we want to go in and debunk mode, just attack mode. Whereas I think you know there's a place for that. There's a place for critique. I just wrote something that's sort of a critique of certain elements of the recommendations of the guidepost report from the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm. There's a place for critique. I'm not saying critique, it, but it's not enough to say what you're against. You have to say what you're for. Yep. And so I think finding the ways to articulate truth and say, this is what I think is true. This is where I'm going. And one of the reasons that the, my three worlds framework has been very effective is I'm presenting something. I'm not just sitting back criticizing what other people are doing. Here's a way yep. that you ought to be thinking about the world. Now, again, I don't claim that that's some ontologically pure you know, truth in the sense that theology is truth. Obviously, from you know, theological truths, even stronger, <laughs> we, we should do. Putting forth this positive vision, putting forth a, a vision is more important than engaging in the fray yeah. and in the critique. Not that we don't know people who are in the fray, but the agenda has been being set by other people mm-hmm. and what they're doing, and then it becomes the reaction against it. Give other give something that's better, truer, and then all of a sudden they're going to react to what you're doing. That's what I'd rather do. I'd rather have other people reacting to what I'm saying yeah. than me spending all the time reacting to what other people do. That's why I study. That's why you know I I do what I do so I can try to find truth and find tools and find ways to help people and articulate things um, that are going to be useful, uh, not just criticize what other people are doing, you know, one of my guiding principles uh, for my my work that I do is to build up, not just to tear down. I think we need to really be in the building up mode. Yeah. uh, Not just in the tearing down mode. Although there's a time to build up and a time to tear down. I think, you know, this is, you know, was uh, Mark Andreessen. It's a time to build. No, he wasn't talking about, uh, you know, he wasn't talking about the church, but I think there is a time to say, okay, what are some truths we can start talking about in, in a better way. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's important. Well, I think you're doing a great job. I, I'm excited to see how, um, how this framework is, has helped, you know, helped us see through, uh, see the, the world and is a sparking conversation. So um, I thank you. Um, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me on. That's our show for today. Big thanks to Aaron Wren for joining me on the show. Be sure to follow him at Twitter. And check out his other content at AaronRen.com. You can subscribe to his newsletter there. He has a podcast. He's a thinker that is always causing me to kind of consider new ideas that I hadn't previously encountered. So he's, he's a great, um, great person to follow. It'll really kind of uh, help you in exploring new ideas. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening and sharing this content with your friends. I hope you find it helpful. If you do, I'd really appreciate rating over at uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, rating and a review would be helpful in getting us uh, more exposure for the show. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe so you don't miss future content. As always, thank you so much. I will see you next time. <laughs>